Wonderful. So thank you everyone for joining us. We are joined by Eve. And Eve, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space Audio Literary Salon. Thank you for having me, Yvonne. Any, any time. So let's dive right into the book. What was it about the 1942 landing that inspired you to write this historical mystery? I set out to write a book that I felt a strong personal connection toward. And when I began to explore places in Manhattan with historical interest for me, I found that the backstory behind the Nazi saboteur landing, their target was said to have been Grand Central Terminal. And when I looked into that, I discovered that the men who landed on the beach off the coast of New York in 1942 actually landed literally steps away from where I grew up. So right away, it was kind of a haunting chill and a connection that I felt, you know, very deeply about. Oh my goodness. I love that. Like a mystery right there on your doorstep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I love that it inspired you to write something more or to dig deeper as well. I find with history, it's so interesting. Once you begin to explore, it really is right underfoot. That's fascinating because it makes it seem like we all have history Mm -hmm. that's, you know, or a mystery or something that we could be interested in and write about Mm -hmm. or learn from just right outside. So thank you so much for that. I truly believe that's true, actually. Can we have a reading, please? Yes, I'm going to start with the prologue. um, And it is about the Nazi saboteurs landing on the beach here in Amagansett, New York, which happened Exactly. I know this this will air not exactly on the day we're recording, but it happened exactly 80 years ago today, June 13th, that the men landed on the beach here. So Amagansett, New York, 1240 a.m., June 13th, 1942. Peter sought solace in the pitch black sky. The shore was shrouded in fog and his eyelashes were moist with sea spray or was it tears? He had endured 17 months in prison and 17 days at sea, only to have landed on a desolate beach with three misfits, none of whom could be trusted. Fifty yards past the breakers, a long, dark object lurked just below the ocean's surface. If he didn't know better, he might have thought it was a whale. The hull scraped sandy sea bottom and gravel washed against iron. There was a loud swish he recognized as the sound of the submarine blowing water from its tanks as it tried to lift itself off the ocean floor. The surf pounded like a war drum, urging him to run, while his feet sank into the wet sand, cementing him in place. George stood beside him, frantically searching his pockets. Damn it, Pete, I lost something. The silver streak in his hair glistened with salty mist as he dropped to hands and knees to comb the sand. There was a little book I had. It's important. Peter cringed at the thought of following such a bungling leader on this risky mission. George had a towering ego and an off-putting habit of holding his index finger to his nose while talking, as if to prevent anyone else from getting a word in edgewise. Peter might have been amused if the situation were not so dire. They had come ashore less than an hour ago and had just finished unloading their deadly cargo when they experienced a terrifying close call. A tall figure striding toward them, swinging a flashlight. 
The beam illuminated the man's blue Coast Guard uniform. George gave a court wave of his hand, motioning for the others to stay back. Peter reached into a duffel bag and pulled out a red sweater, which he tossed to George, who slipped it over his wet fatigues. The other men snatched up the heavy crates and took cover while George went to intercept the guardsmen. The encounter had been tense, but mercifully brief. George was convinced the boy had believed his story, that they were fishermen who had lost their way. Peter was less sure. The fellow had fled quickly. Either he was frightened or he was planning to return with reinforcements, probably both. Peter squinted into the gray surf. The rubber dinghy and the sailors who had brought them here had been swallowed by darkness. His head shot up as an eerie mechanical hum cut through the fog. More trouble. Sub stuck, he noted, deadpan. He pictured dozens of men desperately scrambling to raise a thousand-ton sub out of the ocean's silt, but fear for his own safety surpassed any compassion he may have felt for the stranded crew. If they can't free themselves, Captain Linder has orders to blow it up. George sounded like a spectator betting on a boxing match, not a man on the ropes. Come on, Pete, let's scram. Peter trailed George up a slope toward the dunes. He had not walked more than a few feet or stood straight in weeks. His calves ached and his body rocked as if he were still on board the sub. They found the other man sitting on a large piece of driftwood, passing a ball of schnapps between them. Both had changed into wrinkled civilian clothing and their discarded uniforms lay in a sodden heap beside a scattering of wooden crates. Both sprang to their feet as a searchlight began scanning the sand. The schnapps slipped from the smaller man's hand. The jig's up, he said. He had a cross-shaped scar in the center of his forehead that flashed in the darkness like a cyclops eye. Get a hold of yourself, the other man snapped. He stood to face George. This is all your fault. You should have killed that boy while you had the chance, or I would have done it for you. He was a heavy-set fellow, and Peter had little trouble imagining him twisting the guardsman's neck and snapping it with his bare hands. Now, boys, George said evenly. This is the time to be quiet and hold your nerves. Do exactly what I tell you. Each of you get some crates and follow me. Pete, throw those uniforms in the duffel and come on. Peter curbed his worry by telling himself that, at the very least, George was taking charge. Maybe the circumstances were not as hopeless as he feared. One look at the other man told him otherwise. The thick-set oaf was halfway towards George and might have lunged, if not for a flare that exploded overhead. The danger seemed to sober him for now. Swearing under his breath, he hefted a pair of crates onto his shoulders and started towards the dune. The man with the scar hoisted another set and followed. When their backs were turned, Peter stuffed the wet uniforms into the duffel, strung the bag over his shoulder, and picked up the remaining crate. The box held a sealed container to prevent water damage to the explosives inside and weighed close to 30 kilos. He had only taken a single step forward when the searchlight caught a glint of glass on the sand, the forgotten schnapps. The light seemed to linger on the label, Yadzolz, the Weimar Republic brand. Disgusted that the others left such an obvious trail, Peter stooped to pick it up. His fingers had just closed around the bottle's neck when he had another thought. Better to leave one small clue, a breadcrumb in the witch's forest should things not go as planned, 
Peter lagged purposely behind as George led the others inland. When he had fallen a safe distance back, he dug a shallow hole and dropped his ship cap inside. Another crumb and not much of a safeguard. If he were going to survive, he would have to find better means to protect himself. Peter dumped handfuls of sand over the cap, but could still see the insignia with its spread-winged eagle and blood-red swastika glimmering in the fog. You know what really struck me is really vivid details and description throughout. And what struck me, though, right away was that sense of them not trusting each other. And I don't think it's something I ever thought about. You know how you, like... You as- oh, I guess I assume that when people are kind of working together or they're like a unit, then like the, the trust is like one of those things, it's a given. And so to have that, you know, just immediately that there's, there's, there's no trust there, there's no friendship there, was just like, oh my goodness, like I hadn't even thought about that. And it just added a layer of tension to it. The, the, the scene is actually based on um, dialogue that was recorded in the men's testimony. I was surprised when I so when I um, when I knew you were going to be on and I was reading uh, reading up about it. I was surprised how quickly they turned, or how how quickly one of them it seemed to have turned on everybody else. Mm-hmm. I was not expecting that. I would have thought it would have been like uh, it was just me. I was by myself, but no, it was like not just who I was with here. But did you get the other people? <laughs> like I'm like, oh my goodness. So you know, they only trained for three weeks together. So. Um, they, they really didn't have, it was a crew that was thrown together and they certainly didn't have any trust of one another. No, now that you say it's like three weeks, my goodness, that's yes. hardly enough time to, um, to make a, a viable plan, let alone to form bonds. Absolutely not. Yeah. And clearly there's just so much going on as I began to look into the men, there's just so much going on with their backgrounds, you know, so- is Peter the one that interested you the most? Because I was interested in, so your character is Peter Berger, and then the one of the real people was Ernest Peter Berger. Mm-hmm. And was, I was curious, was, so was that just intentionally based on them? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I write historical fiction, and I do think that truth is stranger than fiction. So I do like to stick to the facts, because you don't want to be reading historical fiction and doubting those facts. So That's Peter true. is actually known, was known as Peter, and, and his, his mates did call him Peter and Pete, although his name is Ernest Peter Berger. Um, yes, and he seemed like the most sympathetic character that I could pull from a lot of them. Okay. And what was that like? So imagining and researching and the writing of him as that complex character, and I noticed it says it caught on the wrong side of history. And uh-huh. what was that like, kind of like imagining him where the history or the facts or the transcript wasn't? Yeah, so, well, where the facts are is that Peter, like all of the men, lived in the United States for many years. Family ties brought him back to Germany in maybe the late 20s, early 30s. He, but in the United States, he was a naturalized citizen and he worked for the National Guard. Back in Germany, obviously the situation was very hard, but he was a member of the Nazi party. He was sent to Poland where he wrote a report on the conditions of the Polish people 
that and Nazi atrocities there that got him sent to prison, a Gestapo prison for 17 months. On release from the prison, he had very little choice but to be drafted into this operation. Wow. Yeah, you know, clearly one, you know, Nazis, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. But sometimes, I mean, I guess through the process of this, I started to see you could simply be a victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time with your family threatened. I don't know how any of us would react under those circumstances. We all like to think we do the noble thing. But Peter was not, you know, a concentration guard. He was not killing people. He was drafted on this sabotage mission, which he never carried out. And it doesn't even sound like it was planned to be a success. Like to to say, I'm going to train you for these, you know, these three weeks and I'm going to put you and you're going to go do this thing. And you're not trained for, you know, what happens next or or what is the worst case scenario? Or just so many what ifs and so many um, things that can go wrong. And so when they do go wrong, Uh it's just like, well, of course they did. They had very little training, but the truth is they were very, very close to accomplishing what they wanted to, what mm-hmm. what their leaders had wanted them to accomplish. You know, had not two of the members, you know, I don't want to give too much away, yeah. but acted the way they behaved, who knows what might have happened. So well, I guess what was it that... um that drew you to, you said he was the most sympathetic. Was he the one whose background you could get the most information or could you get everyone's information as well? I think the person whose background I could get the most information from was a a man named George Dash, who was the group leader who wound up writing a memoir and seemed to be a very, very verbose individual. But he is not a likable character at all. You know, many people commented that when I'm always trying to sidestep giving too much of the plot away, but that Peter acted in a dignified manner throughout. And I think that's what drew me towards to him as a character. And thank you for trying not to give too much away because (laughs) I um, I'm horrible with stuff like that because like, I always say like, so like someone, the Butler did it when (laughs) I, and I try not to do it. Well, actually I say I try not to do it, but I'm one of those people when I have a secret, I'm just like, oh my gosh, did you have a secret? Yvonne, I work in a bookstore. So when trying to tell someone, gee, this is a great book, you don't want to spoil it. <laughs> See, I, I feel like maybe I wouldn't be able to work in a bookstore because I'd be like, this is a great book. You're going to absolutely love the ending, especially when the, and they'll be like, oh. <laughs> did, did you yeah. tell me the whole ending of the book? Yeah, I did. But I didn't ruin it for you because it was so well-crafted. Well, people, people look at me sideways when I say very, very little. <laughs> Read it. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> Page oh, 68. <laughs> well, I guess somewhere there's a balance, a happy medium. <laughs> mm, yeah. And with that in mind, can we have another reading, please? Okay. So in chapter one, the perspective changes to a, a female character at a military parade that's actually was the largest, well, again, 80 years ago today, the largest U.S. military parade or military parade in U.S. history with an estimated 2 million spectators with Mm -hmm. tanks going up Fifth Avenue. It's really kind of an interesting sight to see 
on YouTube. There is some video. So I will start reading. Bombers roared overhead as armored tanks with menacing names, bazooka, custard, hell's a poppin', rumbled up Fifth Avenue. Paratroopers brandished jump wing badges and sailors in Dixie Cup caps sang anchors away. But all the bugles, trumpets, and drums were drowned out by a wave of cheers in a sea of stars and stripes. Thousands of onlookers waved miniature flags. Thousands more leaned out of windows, releasing a whirlwind of confetti. Greta dove into the throng, eager to submerge herself in America's melting pot. Most people were speaking English, some more fluently than others. She heard Irish brogues and nasal French vowels, Spanish, Russian, Russian, a smattering of Italian, no German. Yet she recognized her countrymen immediately. She could spot the women from behind 10 feet away. Their shoes were clunky. Their stockings were made of heavy silk or cotton and did not have seams in the back like the American ones. She was tempted to approach them and ask if they shared her same jumble of emotions. Pride in her new country, sorrow for the one she left behind, and weightless uncertainty as if her feet were planted nowhere. Get your souvenir program, a hawker cried. You can't tell who's winning the war without a program. A marching band struck the opening notes of Handel's Dead March, and a sharp pain flared in Greta's gut. A German composer seemed like a disturbing selection for an American military parade. A funeral march outright macabre. A row of mounted police on spirited horses ushered in the floats. The first featured a cloaked skeleton astride a decrepit horse, beating a red swastika-bearing drum. Greta sprang back as if it might allow her to escape the swastika's reach. Her, her heart pulsed in her ears louder than the drum. With the exception of a few grainy newsprint photos, she had not laid eyes on a swastika since leaving Germany three years earlier. The more she looked, the more it turned round and round, like an undertow threatening to drown anyone who dared swim against the tide. She closed her eyes and felt a fierce current surround her. She had earned shells of trophies at a swim club on the Rhine, but the last time she had visited on a warm June afternoon, very like today, the club was overrun with strangers. One man in work boots and overalls spat, schutzmicker yewed, dirty Jew before snatching her off her feet and flinging her beyond the rope's swim area into the raging river. The current dragged her down and she struggled for air, but the true shock was the venom in the man's eyes. That day, she summoned the strength to swim to shore, and she did the same today, imagining strong, powerful strokes. Ruhig, she told herself, steady. The man to her left jerked his head toward her, and her throat nodded closed. Had she spoken out loud in German? She never spoke in her native tongue. How can you be German and Jewish, a classmate had asked when she first arrived in the United States. Now, when asked about her accent, she said she was Swiss. Trying not to be too obvious, Gret appeared at the stranger. His hat rested on a slant like someone who didn't want to be recognized. He wasn't tall, but his broad shoulders and solid build cast a shadow over her. Would he snatch her by the elbow and then declare her an enemy in their midst? On top of the bleachers, the flags of every allied nation hung limp in the stagnant heat. 
symbolism that did little to inspire confidence, Greta thought. A red, white, and blue banner proclaimed, I need America, America needs me. She read it twice. The first part rang true enough. She was doing her best to fulfill the second. She saved cooking fat in cans, donating it to the local butcher who poured it into a huge vat before turning it over to the army, where the grease was improbably transformed into bombs. Twice a week, she visited the Salvage for Victory Depot on Amsterdam Avenue, where she and other girls passed hours cutting up old girdles, leaky hot water bottles, ripped bathing caps, and galoshes, whose rubbery remains would be melted into tires. And though she was only one among thousands cheering the troops on a stifling summer afternoon, she lent her voice with zeal. The stranger watched her with wondering eyes and offered a half smile difficult to interpret. As the mercury rose, even patrolmen had removed their jackets, but this man still wore his. The buttons were fastened, his necktie was tightly knotted, a matching pocket square neatly folded. Most of the people around them were in old clothing, either out of necessity or a show of support for the war, but his outfit looked brand new. His cufflinks winked in the sunlight. Spiffy was the American word she would use to describe him, maybe even slightly garish. The clothing didn't suit him. Greta held very still, frightened her silence revealed too much. Moments passed until she felt compelled to say something, anything to ease the tension. Swell day, she said, careful to keep her lips in a tight circle and her cheeks drawn as she pronounced swell. She imagined it was the type of thing that might have been uttered by her favorite actress, Myrna Loy. She had seen the thin man her first week in New York and become an instant fan. Loy's character, Nora Charles, had brains as well as curves, a stylish finger curl bob, and a winning attitude. Greta liked to think of America as a place where a woman could use stick and ingenuity to save the day. She stood spellbound as the stranger reached out to touch her forearm. The familiarity of the gesture startled her. There was something conspiratorial about the way he drew casually closer and spoke into her ear. Ick, ach, me too. The words flowed over her, the guttural tone bringing a sense of relief. His whispered German suggested he was a fellow refugee. You were talking about research and that importance of like research with writing historical fiction. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the research that went into the writing of the book and what's one interesting thing uh-huh. that you found out that did not make it in the book? Well, I should, I should pick it up. Oh, but this is an, it's just audio. I, there is a 3,000 page military tribunal transcript. So I had the privilege. It was, I think, just made open to the public in the 1960s. So I certainly read through that. Each man has a personal statement, and I was able to hear the events in their own words. So that was my primary. I also visited the sites where they were in in Manhattan. They had a meeting at Grant's tomb, for instance. I went there. Certainly, I spent a lot of time in Grand Central Station. I happened to live on the coast in Long Island where they landed. So I have been many times to the Amagansett Coast Guard Station where the Coast Guardsmen who left that station intercepted the men on the beach the night they landed. So you, you could just like walk outside and be like, I, I want to feel as if I'm there and just yeah. right there and just like 
you're in the moment. I do feel as if I was there. It's easy, especially somewhere like on the shore in the fog to imagine that you're, you're back at that moment. And how incredible to be able to hear their voices, their story in their own words. My Um, goodness. Yeah, actually on Sunday evening, I went to, they do a reenactment every year where they read the the encounter that the Coast Guardsmen reported. So I actually did hear it there on the beach. Oh my goodness. It's like, it feels like, um, I guess how I would imagine a ghost story that was, <laughs> well, really, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's not Absolutely. just like this. Absolutely. Oh. I feel that. Yeah. How was it like reading your book there, like having your book come out mm-hmm. and knowing that people in that area can read it and appreciate it and, and have that kind of piece of their history? Well, I think, well, in truth be told, it's, it's a little, you know, <laughs> it's a little anxiety producing. But that said, this happened long enough ago that I feel and I feel like I was very faithful to the facts. So I think it's, it's very, it's interesting, because there have been nonfiction accounts of what happened. But to the best of my knowledge, this is the first fictitious treatment of the story. And I think that it captures an audience that might not have read just the mil- this the book is primarily from the perspective of this young woman named Greta who is loosely based on my maternal grandmother who was a german jewish immigrant who arrived in new york almost exactly at that time so mm-hmm. it seemed like you know a really good way to create tension once she discovers what is happening I love that, that you, it's like a way to have your grandmother as part of that history and to imagine her too as not being your grandmother, but as being a person or a character capable of, you know, of change and of wonder and of hope and all those things, those ways that we don't necessarily see people when we just see them in one role. Right. So it seems like in a way, and I'm curious with how close it might make you to that character knowing that this is based on someone that you love well I found and my grandmother is was she just she passed last year at 101 so she she is really not was never like a grandmother (laughs) so she was a lot of fun and so it's it's very easy for me to imagine her as a young lively woman because that is truly who she she was And she had shared many stories about her transition here to the United States. She had been very popular, young, pretty girl back Mm -hmm. in Germany. And it was very difficult for her her to come here when she was, you know, 17, 18 years old and, and be, you know, a bit of an outcast. So I tried and it, you know, it was, it felt natural stepping into her shoes. I love that you all were, were able to um, together those stories mm-hmm. as well, because so many times stories don't get kind of passed down and we don't get to hear about those things and that you were able to visualize her as this young, beautiful woman and as coming to the U.S. with all the change that that might have meant. I think just, you know, how wonderful it is to have that as well. It's wonderful for me, and I actually dedicated the book to her, but even just in this first bit, the incident in which she someone was the Greta was thrown into the Rhine. My grandmother was a very, very good swimmer who um, swam at a swimming pool, which I understand to be kind of a roped swimming area off the Rhine. 
And that was actually something that happened to her. And when I looked into the occurrence, there was reflections of Jewish survivors of Mannheim, which is where she was from. And that happened at the Rhine swimming pool that day. Anonymous strangers came and threw many people into the water, had them leave in their swimsuits and, you know, were very, very disruptive and brutal. I hate this. That sometimes it just it never ceases to amaze me how cruel people can uh, be and to come out of your way. Do you know what I mean? Like to, to be, it's not as if you were just walking by and you just, so you plan to come and then you, you see this oh, group of people and you go in the water yeah. to go and do this. Like if, to a child. That's what I'm thinking. Like, my goodness, I don't even know how they could justify them they, to themselves. Like, look what I've just done. Like, I mean, it's part of the just... universality of the story, sadly, yeah. that what these characters experience still being experienced by people today in different settings and different time. I love that you said that as well, because I think sometimes we read fiction and we don't see those parallels. And sometimes I think that it's willful, but other times it's because we're not, I guess, privy to, or it's not something we think about in our day to day. And then you read it and you're going, you know what? I know this, or I know this feeling, or this is something similar that I've, you know, I've read another person and it reminds you of those connections and those shared pasts and shared presence. Absolutely. I think, you know, historical fiction at its best is something that one can, you learn about the history, but you also apply it to different circumstances. I think you're right. Wow. What a gift. And with that in mind, can we have one final reading? Yes, this is a shorter one. Let's see. (laughs) Ah, this is kind of a little bit more fun. Gives you a slice of uh, Manhattan during the 40s. Greta and Peter turned the corner onto Broadway. Times Square had become a wartime hub. Men outnumbered women and GIs outnumbered everyone else, jamming the streets, making the most of their leave. Greta heard Southern drawls mingled with Aussie twangs, indecipherable to her ears. Some men slurred in the universal language of drunkenness. More than a few looked as if they had been up all night. A crowd milled around 47th Street where Pepsi-Cola has a center for troops to shower and shave. Marquis advertising Porgy and Bess and Oklahoma vied for attention with billboards for defense bonds and cigarettes. Though Times Square's famous lights were dim, The sign still shone with mosaics made of mirrors, which caught sunlight during the day and headlights at night. Greta and Peter threaded through the frivolity. Peter kept his eyes lowered. Greta's pace slowed as they approached the Paramount, where Alfred Hitchcock's saboteur was playing. The movie poster showed a frightened woman clinging to a handsome man, surrounded by images of destruction, a dam under surveillance, an airplane factory on fire, the shadow of a man looking outside a crowded party, gun in hand. Oh, she said, her head shot toward Peter. A sad smile played across his lips as he looked up at the sunlit marquee. I never believed in, how do you say, omen? Omen, it's the same in English, she said, which seemed like one. She expected sirens to blare or the sky to light up as they walked under the marquee. Greta. Greta spun around, colliding into Rose. Rose? Another omen. 
one which Greta did not know how to interpret. Dressed in a form-fitting shirtwaist, Rose peered at Peter with open curiosity. Are you seeing Nazi agent? The accusation ricocheted into the street and Greta imagined to the ears of each and every GI. Why would I see a Nazi agent, she croaked. Rose waved a gloved finger to the Rialto Marquis, where Nazi agent was spelled out in towering letters. The movie, Nazi agent, her gaze swept from Greta to Peter, then back to Greta. Are you feeling better? She peered past Greta's hemline. How's your knee? Peter took Greta's elbow. Greta's just overwarm. Greta flinched. Was overwarm even a word? It's hot out, Rose agreed cheerfully. She turned to Greta, and when no introduction was forthcoming, she plowed ahead. I'm Rose, she said, extending a hand to Peter. Peter shook it and offered a handsome grin that made Greta blush with pride. Peter, Greta and I worked together, Rose said, on the home front. She lifted her chin and smiled, seeming to expect a reciprocal explanation. But Greta had become as withdrawn as Peter was earlier. Really? Peter looked at Greta as if she were the one with a cache of secrets. Greta flushed as it dawned on her that he was not entirely wrong. What do you do? He asked Rose. Rose leaned toward him. We're spies, she winked. You know, like Matahari? Funny, Greta said. Was Matahari a double agent? Greta was pretty sure she'd been shot by a firing squad. Rose and I volunteered together at the salvage depot, she clarified, cutting up old rubber. We destroy top-secret braziers and classified girdles, Rose held a finger to her lips. It's all very hush-hush. That's the opposite of lending support, Peter joked, his eyes alight with mischief. Rose laughed and Greta, Greta marveled at his sang-froid. Across the street, a group of star and garter course girls has set up a booth on which caricatures of Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito were mounted. Records for our fighting men, a platinum blonde called, as three others invited people to hurl discs into the Axis leader's gaping mouths. Open your trap, Jap, a man shouted, knocking a buck tooth loose as he tossed a phonograph record at Hirohito. <laughs> it definitely gives us a flavor of... Um of the times and the tensions and the characters. So thank you so very much for such engaged readings. Thank you. You're welcome. And so I'd love for people to go out and buy the book. Where can they do that? The book is available at, you know, any major retailer, but I do tend to say, Hey, go to your local independent bookstore. I work at one. I work at a store called bookhampton.com, which I will plug and say anyone who wants to look at our website and order the book there, go right ahead. But if you don't see the book on the shelf, please ask for it. It's available through Amazon. There's also an audio that's available and uh, Barnes and Noble. So um, it's, it's out there as of tomorrow. <laughs> oh, wonderful. June, June 14th. June 14th. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show, for reading to us, for answering questions. And just, I can't wait to read the book. Thank you, Yvonne. Thank you so much. And good luck with the podcast. Oh, thank you.